Welcome to the family room of the rock. We say that every week. We call this the family room, and some people, you may think, that's a little cliche, that's a little, are you sure it's the family room? And it is. And it might sound cliche, but it is a family room. We, this is not systematic theology courses being taught. We're talking a lot about what we believe. We're going through the Word of God. We're exalting the name of Jesus, but this isn't all polished. This isn't a program There is no intent on anyone that's involved in leadership to entertain anyone. Our goal when we gather together is to exalt the name of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to take the family room aspect, and we're going to look at a different facet of it. A lot of times, it's what we can call it the family room, but we come and we do this really the same thing every week. And Sometimes in the family room you do the same thing, and sometimes you do different things. And uh, it's always where, if, if I don't know, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but our family room, we tell a lot of stories in our family room. That's like you get home, I get home from a day's work and we're done, you know, we eat supper and all that stuff. Our dining room, this is kind of a dining room too, because we tell some stories in our dining room. But it's where we retell all of the glorious uh, ordeals of the day. And I tell you, when I retell the events of my day, they are glorious. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, Melinda wasn't there, so it could be amazing whatever I did, and it might not have been that amazing. But anyways, in our family room here at The Rock, and this morning, we're going to take just a little bit of time and make much of Jesus through some testimony. Um, before Terry and Paula come, and they're going to come and share, but before they do, I want to read just a little chunk of scripture I'm going to read Psalm 145, verses 1 through 15, and, uh, and then they're going to come up and share, and whatever time they take, whatever time they need, um, we will be able to hear of the mighty works of God. So if you would, if you got your Bibles, you want to turn to it, otherwise it'll be on the screen, or you can just listen as I read. Psalm 145, picking up in verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All of your works shall praise you, O Lord. Your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generation. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. Verse 15, the first part of verse 15 reads, the eyes of all look expectantly to you. And I, that, as I was reading through this this week, I was, that's the That's the chunk I really wanted to read, but I wanted to read it in the context of this. Um, We've all experienced times in our lives when our eyes just look expectantly 
to the Lord. And we've had those, we've talked about it here that there are times in our lives we don't know what else to do, so we just look to Jesus. And we don't know what else to do, and so we send out the worshipers in front of the battle. And there's, there's all these different things that we've talked about, especially coming into worship. But I just, I remember back as when Terry got sick and uh, then it got worse, and I'm not, tell, I'm not gonna tell their story, but I think about in our house and our perspective on it, and then the body here, our opportunity that we had to pray for them, to lift up, lift up their family. And I think about their eyes of all look expectantly to you. The night that we came here and we prayed, out in the parking lot. We had a little worship time, and we prayed. <clears throat> we didn't have any answers. We didn't have any, we didn't have like, well, this is what we should do. We'll go fix it like this. And it's really hard if, for the men in the room, like, that's what I do is fix things. That's like all of my whole week is spent fixing broken things. And this situation, there was no fixing. We couldn't even get to the problem. And this was the perspective that we all came with. The eyes of all look expectantly to the Lord. And I just, I want to, we're going to take this morning, and it might be different than any church service you've ever been to before. It's just going to be a time of Terry and Paula sharing their story of God's faithfulness. So you guys want to come up here? We got a couple of mics for you guys. You guys can join me, and then I'm going to pray for you guys uh, before you start. And I'll clear all of my stuff off the podium. I don't know if it's on. It's good to go. It's good. All right. You guys come up here. Let's pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to hear a testimony of your faithfulness. That we can make much of Jesus this morning. Thank you that in this story, there's nothing to see but Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness, that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one waited for for generations, and the one that we now declare openly and with all boldness of your faithfulness, your mighty works. Pray a blessing over the words that we hear this morning, a peace over Terry and Paula as they share. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Isaac. Um, most of what you're going to hear, at least the first half anyway, is going to be from Paula um, because she was living it and I was unconscious, basically. Um, there's a lot of things I don't remember happening. Um, I don't remember being taken to the hospital. I don't remember taking Paula to the hospital the week prior for IV treatments. I don't remember much of anything until I started coming to in the ICU. And one of the first, besides the hallucinations from the medication, one of the first things I remember is speaking out against the devil, against the enemy, and telling him that he doesn't have any rights to me. You know, I'm God's child. You can't have me right now. You can never have me. You can't have my family. And Paula would come in and see me in the ICU, and I wasn't conscious enough to know it was her. Thought maybe it's just another nurse coming in because, you know, she had to be all gowned up. But so with, with that, um, you know, Jane, could you put up Proverbs 18.21? 
says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We spoke life, and here I am. Miracle. Not expected to live. All the doctors and nurses were seeing was death. But God still has a plan for me here on earth. So... Um, I appreciate each and every one of you and anyone that you know that was praying for us because we really could feel it. We could feel it like arms being wrapped around us. And all my life, I always thought that when, um, when you couldn't go on, that people would walk beside you shoulder to shoulder and you would have your arms, you know, kind of between their bodies, and through all of this, it was completely different than that. There was just nothing that we could do, and absolutely nothing, and so it was like laying flat on your back, just looking up, because there was nowhere else to look, and the body of Christ just lifting you up, just up like this, instead of arm in arm. Because in all of this, um, the biggest thing that I learned is that, this is probably a shocker to some of you, um, God doesn't actually need me to do anything. Crazy, right? Um, God of the universe doesn't really need me to, uh, to do anything specific. All he needs me to do is to just hold on to his hand and just believe that his plans are for prospering us and to give us life and abundance and that's all we really need to do and I always thought I had to do something like I never would ask God I wouldn't pray if I lost my car keys because I was like oh that's you hello try to remember what you're doing because I didn't want to waste God's time and in all of this it's just came to be just the thing that whenever your child speaks to you, it's never a waste of your time because whatever they're saying to you is important and is part of what is in their heart. And God being a much better father than we are, you know, everything we can bring to him because nothing is too small and nothing is too big. And that's my biggest lesson that I've learned that I really don't have to be in charge of something. I don't have to, you know, gather a group of people to do anything. All I have to do is believe that God will do what he said he would do, and his promises are yes and amen, and he never changes. Um, That being said, you all are a whole lot scarier up here than you are when I'm like... (laughs) A lot. Um, This all started the 19th of September. I came down with COVID and actually thought that it was just a cold and wasn't too too worried about it. And then uh, a day or so into it, a friend of mine said, oh, hey, you know that fundraiser we worked last week? Yeah, the lady beside you had COVID. So it kind of changed the game there. And I had to go and get tested, and 
Terry took me to get tested, so his workplace said, we just need you to stay, thank you, we just need you to stay home until, uh, until you have a negative test and then you can come back and, and all of that. And during which time, um, I got sicker and sicker and um, I didn't actually know that a person can hyperventilate. I had heard that, but I always thought it was just a like calm down, you know, kind of like people say, I'm gonna have a stroke, you know, and you, you really don't. Thought it was that until I actually did it. And that was the night that he took me to the ER because my face and my hands and my legs were numb and I didn't know why and I was really scared. And um, come to find out it was just breathing too fast and they, they gave me IV fluids and said, you know, just go home and rest and yes, you have COVID and stay away from people. And at that night, he was starting to come down with it too and before we left, the ER doctor said, oh, and don't go anywhere because I'm pretty sure that you have COVID as well. So we tried to quarantine in, in the house, like kind of separate from each other and just kind of just to keep out of each other's way and just that kind of thing. So we did that for about a week. And, and our anniversary, our 32nd anniversary was coming up on the 30th of September. I had to ask Paul, I said, did we do anything? Because I don't remember it. <laughs> she says, yeah, we stayed away from each other. Yeah, that was the uh, in sickness part of our vows. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. I would go like to Key West or something much more fun. And anyway, uh, that day he had called the doctor. I was starting to get better at that point, but he had called the doctor and they didn't return his call, but they had just said, you know, get a, what is pulse it called? Ox. A pulse ox for pulse your ox fingers meter. so you could monitor what your oxygen was. So I ordered one and went and picked it up. And um, the next day in um, the verse that we shared about you will um, eat the fruit of your, your words. Yeah, um, that is true in more than one way. It's true in speaking life and health into someone who's sick and protection over your children. And it's also true in the things that you say to someone that are less than kind. Um, it was Friday, and um, it was the day after our anniversary, and he was, forgive me, moping around and just being just, you know, kind of like a man with a cold kind of thing. And I said to him to call the doctor, find out what they would have you do, and to quit acting like a baby. And if you chose not to call, then you were agreeing to stop talking, like a baby. <laughs> no, to shut up about it for the rest of the weekend because I wasn't in the mood to hear it. So he did call and his oxygen was 89 and the nurse just said, okay, we'll talk to the doctor. So I didn't really think it was a big, big thing, but then they called like almost immediately back and said, take him to the ER. So we did and they took him back and they said, okay, go home, stay away from everyone for another five days because he still has COVID and we don't know if you do or not. So they did, <clears throat> excuse me, they did a chest x-ray for him and when they were moving him from the wheelchair to the bed <clears throat> at the hospital, 
his oxygen dropped into the upper 60s, which is really low. And had he been at home and not had a nurse hand standing there, he would have most likely fallen on the floor and been injured. So we kind of count that as like the first miracle that God has done for us. And because you weren't allowed visitors or anything in the COVID unit, it was a really dark and scary time for both of us. Thankfully, he doesn't remember it, but, and I'm grateful for that because it's, that's just a gift that God gives you that you don't have to remember. Yeah, I found out later that when I was in the ER emergency room, I was texting people, carrying on conversations with text messages. I don't remember it. <laughs> I don't remember any of it. But, so anyway, um, I let in Isaac speak, the devil eat my lunch, and um, I let him beat me up so bad because like the last thing I said to my husband of 32 years was, quit acting like a baby or agree to shut up. It's not exactly like what you would have in, you know, pre-marriage 101, let's do this, but it just... I just kept getting more and more upset about it, and our neighbor across the street was a super close friend of mine, had passed away at the same hospital from COVID pneumonia, which is what he had, and so I was really, really scared, and um, started to hyperventilate again, and I didn't know how to stop it by myself. I tried Googling it, and yeah, this, this is weird things people want you to do on Google. But so I ended up texting Casey's mom, Heather, and um, she called me back and she said, is it for you, is it for someone else? And I said, no, it's for me. And she talked to me for, I think, probably close to two hours before I could like calm down and, and breathe normally and and be able to function, and I'm so grateful for her heart and her willingness to give up time from the family to, to do that. And anyway, um, as it went on, his condition just got worse and worse. His oxygen and things like that just kept getting lower and lower, and he got to the place where he wasn't eating anymore, and he had a, had a panic attack that they put him on a real high level of oxygen and uh, what they called a high flow mask. And so we weren't able to talk on the phone or anything because it's very loud and just, he wasn't strong enough really to, to speak anyway. And um, the next day, the nurse called me, it was about 10.30 in the morning and she said, your, your husband's had a cardiac arrest and you need to come here right now. And so I did, I jumped in the car and I texted Heather and I texted my sister-in-law, Carolyn, and said, please, you know, let our family know what's going on. And I just kept saying out loud, this is not how this story ends, just over and over and over again. And when I got to the hospital, I went to the ER because that's the only place that I was really familiar with. And I'm not really an aggressive person, most generally, but I walked up to the first person I saw at the ER desk and I grabbed him by the shoulders and I said, my husband's had a cardiac arrest on the COVID floor and you're gonna take me there right now. Mm -hmm. And they did. And so <laughs> 
<laughs> they were probably scared to mess with me. But uh, my sister-in-law came and Chris and our younger son, Zach, came and they worked on him for quite a while and they were transporting him to Toledo and the doctor had to make some wheels and deals to get him to go to Toledo because they were full and they were on bypass and not accepting any other patients, but he somehow got him there and... Yeah, from what I understand, it ended up being a two-for-one deal. Fulton County had to take two of Toledo's just for me to go there. <laughs> so, um, it took another two hours for them to get him from the hospital bed to the gurney to go to the ambulance because any time that they would so much as lift his arm or touch his foot or anything like that, his blood pressure and oxygen just tanked and they were just, you know, they didn't know if they would be able to get him there, but they did finally get him there and we actually were at Toledo long before he arrived and my sister-in-law and I were in the waiting room and the doctor came out and I didn't notice it, but she told me about it later that his scrubs were covered in blood. And um, he said, well, here's the story. You have two choices. He said, you can let him suffer and die or we can put in a central line which most likely he'll bleed out and die because of all of the anticoagulants and blood thinners that the not heart trauma hospital had to do to get him here. And he said, and if you decide to do that, his heart and body is probably too weak to do any kind of resuscitation. So, you know, it's, you know, which one do you want to do, you know? And so we obviously picked for if we're gonna go, we're gonna go out trying, we're gonna go out swinging. So that was what we did. And it actually went a lot better than we expected. And uh, Chris and Zach came that night. And normally they don't allow more than one person to see someone in a COVID unit, but they allowed the three of us to go back. And I thought at the time that they were just like, just being really super nice and, you know, and, and I was like, oh, that's God's favor, it, which it is. And also on their perspective, they were like, well, it's not gonna matter because he's not gonna make it through the night anyway. So, because even the doctor at Fulton County, I asked, well, what do you think? You know, he's, he's gonna get better once he gets to Toledo. And he's like, I don't wanna give you false hope. So it was pretty grave. And the boys got to see, to see their dad and, um, they, they briefed us and they said, okay, you can come back tomorrow. That's one hour window. One person can go back and, you know, don't call us, we'll call you kind of thing. And so my sister-in-law and I ended up going to a hotel because I still didn't know if I was uh, positive or negative for COVID and her, some of her family hadn't been vaccinated. So we didn't wanna do this again and um, found out that night that it was negative, so was able to go and stay at their house. It was about six minutes from the hospital, so that was a huge blessing to be so close and to be able to get there in a hurry, which we ended up having to do several different times. Um, he, Terry, did well. His, he did well overnight, and his 
oxygen and things like that were improving and they were pretty pleased with how he was doing, being critically ill, but, um, lose my train of thought. But they still weren't sure I was gonna make it. Right, and he was two weeks, so they couldn't determine what kind of damage had been done or anything like that. And that day they told me to just stay away. You know, um, we know you want to see him, but with all the gowning up and everything, it takes away from the time we have to actually care for him, so don't come. So I followed what they said, and um, the next day we had to go to the guard base because there was an issue with his pay, and so I had to go and sign papers, and we had gone to our house because in my... Um, crazy mind when we stopped to pack a bag. I, uh, I obviously didn't know how to pack a bag. I had like one flip-flop and half a bathing suit. And yeah, it was, it was just not, you want me packing for you. It didn't make any sense. But so we were there and we were getting ready to leave to head to the guard base when the doctor called and said, you know, I want to talk to you about your husband. And I said, okay. And he said, that um, they were just now finding out about the stroke. And I was like, excuse me, what are you talking about? He had a heart attack, he didn't have a stroke. And they said, oh, he had a heart, he had a heart attack and a stroke. And that was the first that we had heard of that. And then they told me that um, he had been down for 25 minutes before they were able to resuscitate him and all I had known was that the nurse had been taking him to use the bathroom, and he said, I feel dizzy, and then he arrested, and she was right there. That was all that I knew. I didn't know about the 25 minutes. I didn't know about a stroke, and we were just, we were just devastated. We were floored, and the doctor said, well, you're going to be coming in at 5 tonight, and I'll, I'll meet with you and, and have all of your family come because... You need to make a decision of whether you're going to let him stay alive or, or not. And um, they said, he said, because uh, right now we see no brain activity. And we, we didn't even, we had no inkling that that was even a possibility. Had no idea that was on the radar. And they said, all he has right now is reactivity to light and that's it. And so when we went to the guard base, there was just a multitude of people there trying, you know, trying to help and, and do what they could do to help us. And, and on our way to the hospital, I spoke with my longtime friend who has been a nurse for 30 years, and she said, they want you to make a decision right now and I said, yes, they want to know, do you want him to be kept alive or not? And she said, no, don't let them, don't let them rush you. Don't let them force you into that. And um, she said, you just tell them that you don't have enough information to make that decision. And she said, if he's brain dead today, he's going to be brain dead tomorrow. If he's not brain dead, tomorrow, then his body just needed time to rest and to adjust and 
you know, time for allow God to work his miracle, which he did. Yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back the story up just a little <clears throat> bit to when I had the, the heart attack at the hospital. That, that, where that happened, with nurse being right there to catch me, that's all God's timing. That, his hand was in all of that. Because if I, I, I'd have been driving or at home, you know, I could have collapsed in the bathroom, been blocking the door, and, and it would have taken longer to get medical help. But because of God's timing, the nurse was right there with me, and they were able to start the CPR and, and uh, the shocks to the heart to try and get it, get it pumping again. Yep, and the uh, chaplain from the base came to the hospital and met with the family, and um, he came into the room with me, and he prayed over Terry, and he read the 23rd Psalm, and, and at the time, it didn't occur to me that what he was doing was essentially giving him last rites. It, it never occurred to me. I just heard the psalm of, you know, I'll be with you through the valley and the shadow of death. And that was what I heard. And he, the chaplain stayed there with the family and the doctor explained things. And we all were in agreement that we were going to wait, keep him on full codes. Something happened, do everything you could. Just, we're, we were gonna wait. So over the next few days, he actually started getting better. And it was just kind of a little roller coaster. He would do, he'd do well, and then he would tank, and then he would do well, and he would tank, and back and forth, to the point that every time my phone made a noise, I jumped just out of my skin every single time. And if my phone rang, it was just like being so nervous, your hand is shaking to try to catch the buttons to answer it. And um, several times we had to leave and go right away to the hospital. But for over a period of a few days, he started, he started doing better. And they had put him in, I forgot to tell you this part, they put him in a medical coma the first night that he had arrived there. And it included paralytic drugs, which made it where he couldn't move his extremities or anything at all, that they were just essentially keeping blood flow to the heart and the brain and and just those essential things, and the rest was on hold. And they decided that they were going to start to wean him off the paralytic drugs and the um, sedation and just to see, because at that point they still didn't feel that he had any brain activity, but we were still waiting for other tests and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I went in and I was... The first couple of times I tried to go in and, and pray for him and just there were no words that would, would actually just come out, but it didn't matter because God knows what's in your heart and your prayers don't have to be words. Your prayers are just what the voices of what your heart is saying. And so I would go in and talk to him and and tell him, you know, hey, it's a beautiful sunny day, and you know that Harley is not going to ride itself, and you're going to need to get up out of here, and you know we've got stuff to do. And he really didn't respond much, but um, I would squeeze his fingers and just hoping and praying. And a couple of times I thought 
that I felt him respond to me, but then I wasn't sure and didn't know if I had imagined it. And the one day the dialysis nurse was in there and um, I squeezed his hand and, she, and I kind of looked at her when he squeezed it back and she said, I saw that. Like, okay, I'm not crazy. This really happened and I had brought my phone in to play music that we have that he's sang and, you know, just different worship songs and things like that because I just know that that speaks to your heart when words just, words just don't and just that music does. And he did start to respond and he would wiggle his toes and he would squeeze the hands of the nurse and stuff when she would ask him to. And you could see his eyes move back and forth because he was trying to figure out where you were and, and that kind of thing. And the one day I asked him, is this music too loud? And he shook his head no. And I don't know that I've ever been so excited in my life for someone to tell me no, but <laughs> I was so excited. And um, then the next day when I went in and played the music again, I said to him, I said, if you know that I love you, open your eyes. And his face was pretty swollen and things like that. And, um, and he did. He opened his eyes. It was only just a fraction because he just wasn't able and strong enough to open them like fully. But you could definitely tell that he, he had done that. And um, it was just a super, super high point. And it was just so exciting to see him do that. And then the next day, they were draining his gallbladder when he had all the blood thinners and anticoagulants, he had bled into his gallbladder and his body hadn't reabsorbed it, so they needed to put in a drain so it wouldn't become infected and cause other issues. So I was like, okay, let's, let's do that. And so we were, I was at my brother's house with all of his kids and just a busy household and we were getting dinner ready and I got a call from the hospital and the doctor says, um, your husband's bleeding out. Do we have permission to do emergency surgery? And uh, I don't know why they call you and ask you that if you've already told them to do everything that they need to do. But I was like, yes, I hope someone is already in there with him. I'm on my way. And we got there and my sister-in-law had driven. Thank God, because I did not have the capacity to do that. And we literally were running in the hospital hallway, and um, I had texted, I think, Jody from, from here. And um, at that point, I hadn't slept in like 14 days and was just exhausted and overwhelmed and had been back and forth and back and forth. And I was just like, God, I can't do this. I just wanted to just lay down and and just stop, I can't, I can't do this. And um, then, you know, everyone was praying and, and I could feel the prayers, but it was just so overwhelming. And um, a few minutes, well, a little while later, 
the doctor came out and he said, well, we removed the gallbladder, we stopped the bleeding, and we, we've given him four liters of blood. And uh, I'm not really medical, but I think he only had like six. So it was a lot. So we were, it was just crazy because we went from like six o'clock that we're at death's door, we're in this emergency place, to 9.30, looking in at him through the window, that he was fine. I mean, he was stable and his vitals were good and it was just crazy. And those things, even though that was a, a point that we were really happy and, and praising God for, it was overwhelming to go from the depths to the heights in such a short amount of time. And it was, it was just amazing. But he continued to do better, and three days later, they took out his vent. So he was able to breathe on his own, and um, it, was, it was just amazing. And my sister-in-law and I were both there, and they let us come in the room. And the first thing he said to me was, hey, baby. And then he asked her, how are your grandkids? And Two days ago, they were thinking, oh, he just sees light. He, he doesn't have any brain activity. So it was just amazing just to witness what God did through that. And um, Yeah, because everything the enemy threw at us, and I, I think somebody said it when I was here for Christmas Sunday, um, even the kitchen sink came at us. All the ups, the downs. But at no time did me or Paula ever blame God for this because we knew that he didn't do it to us. We knew he was there to make it better and make it right. So, yeah, it was just, just amazing, you know, every step of the way to see God's hand in control of the situation. Yep. And um, the day after the emergency surgery, our younger son called me and said, hey, mom, my car broke down on uh, Route 6. Can you come and help me? And um, I, don't know that, I don't know how he wasn't aware that asking me to help with the car is like bringing the sandwich to the banquet. But um, I ended up calling one of the people that Terry works with at the guard base and I just said, you know, he's broke down on Route 6, and he's like, all right, and he calls one of the other guys there. He says, hey, you're coming with me, and um, I'm like, well, I don't know exactly where he's at, and he says, that's all right. I know where Bowling Green is, and I would know where Route 6 is. I'll find him, and so he went, and he got him to a shop where they were able to fix his car, but that was, you know, the very next morning after this amazing thing that God had done, and um, during the same time, my sister-in-law had her identity stolen, and um, my niece, who had been fully vaccinated, got COVID and had to stay away from the house. And it was just, I remember talking to Jody, and I just said, how do, I, how do I do this? I'm just so angry. And she just said, you know, just yell at the enemy. Just tell him, you have no authority here. You know, we're covered by the blood of Jesus, and 
and we did, and I know Casey was at the house one day, and we were talking about it, and just, just kind of yelling at the enemy, and just saying, you just need to stay away, this is God's property, and uh, so he had his tube out, and they had him in one of these rooms where we still weren't really allowed to go in because he had the high flow oxygen on and he was still full COVID. He was still in isolation, but they were um, selecting screensavers. And so I said, well, why don't you put the mountains on there? And uh, that way, because we, we like to go to the mountains and maybe he'll just, you know, appreciate that. And she's looking for a radio station. And I had told her before that he doesn't like country music. So she was looking through the radio stations and she says, so I hear you love country music. And um, he shook his head so adamantly. He's no, 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 because those are the uh, dirty seas of uh, Terry's life. Yeah, country music, coconut and celery. We just don't do those things in our home, <laughs> but um, but that was just funny to see his personality come through. And most of that I don't remember when Paula was telling me about the uh, screensaver on the TV of the mountains. That struck a bell with me. I'm like, I think I remember that. I think I remember seeing mountains on the TV. So, you know, you, you just never know. Yep, and so he just continued to get better, and he had finally came out of isolation at midnight on Chris's birthday this year, and so just another reason to celebrate. And um, we were actually able to come and go out of the room, and it was it was actually kind of weird at first because it was like the first time I could actually touch him with my hand because we had to have double gloves and all of these kinds of things. And um, anyway, they moved him to a regular room and which time he was able to have visitors and different things like that. But at the time he wasn't able to to eat yet because he had he had a feeding tube and he hadn't passed the swallow studies that they do to make sure that you don't aspirate and um, you know choke and just we didn't need pneumonia we had we were, we were good with what we had on our plate we, we didn't had enough more. already <laughs> yeah we didn't need any more so he was in the regular room and he was just terrified just just terrified any time that I would walk out of the room he didn't think I was coming back and just it was just very you know obviously emotional and you know trying to recover and in pain and just you know wanted to be back to normal life yeah whatever normal is anymore but um, I, I, you know, some of the some of this I vaguely remember, but at one point I remember the doctor coming in, or one of the nurses, I'm not sure which, asked me if I knew what day it was. I said no. He told me. He says, "You know, what's your birthday?" And I knew that and was able to respond. He says, "Do you know where you're at?" I said, "No, I have no clue." He says, "You're at Toledo Hospital." I looked at him and I said, "No, I'm not." He's like, yeah, you are. I'm like, well, 
I, I had no clue why or anything or anything that had happened. And then uh, his next question was, I'm not trying to make this political or anything like that, was, do you know who's president? And my response was, yeah, somebody I didn't vote for. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was like, okay, you know. So it, it's, you know, there, 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 there's some humor in it, you know, some funny things happen, but even before I got up to, you know, out of the ICU, out of isolation, I was having hallucinations. I thought some of the doctors coming in were aliens. You know, you grow up in the 70s and 80s, all the sci-fi stuff, and the way they're, you know, their suits and everything that they had on. So I'm thinking these are aliens. I'm thinking, I've been kidnapped. They had helmets that covered their entire faces, and when you looked to where their eyes were, you just saw look like kind of like little golden, like glowy things. Yeah. So. And uh, so all that's going on, and they at one point they took me down to the dialysis area for dialysis, and I'm not, I wasn't real conscious then, but I'm laying there, and you know, I see all these Halloween decorations, and I couldn't figure out oh, what's with the decorations, you know. And then I thought I saw somebody laying on the floor next to my bed. I said, the nurse says, why is that lady laying there? She's like, there's nobody there. I can see her. There's somebody laying there, and she's got my blanket. She says, there's nobody there. And I must have, I must have fallen asleep or something, because the next thing I know, I'm back up in the room. And, but I didn't, and, and once I was conscious again, I knew what was going on, and they took me down again for dialysis, and I see all these decorations. I'm like, why does this look familiar to me? Well, it's because you were down there already, and you kind of remembered it, so. Yeah, and um, while you're fighting a physical battle, sometimes it's easy to forget that it's a spiritual battle more than it is a physical battle. And he was having these hallucinations, and they were scary, because he would be sitting, they would help him sit into a chair, and he would say, Will you move over to no one? And it was it was just a little weird. And so I had spent most of the nights there. The only time that I left was when they took him to go to dialysis. And the one night I woke up and I just felt like this presence in the room. And um, I saw a man standing between the chair I was sitting in, and his bed, which was only just a couple of inches, but um, I mean, I can still even see his face in my mind. And I remember just reaching over and grabbing his hand and just praying and just rebuking that spirit because it was just an overwhelming evil presence. And I've never experienced that in my life before. And um, so after that, I got up, and it was probably 2 or 3 in the morning, and I walked out into the hallway, and I was just kind of looking around, you know, just, I was just a little bit freaked out. And I went into the bathroom and down the hall and came back in the room, and just the, just the presence in the room was back to one of peace. And... Um, I don't know, it was, maybe maybe I am crazy, I don't know, but 
I'm just grateful for having the Spirit of God inside me that even if I made a mistake and I rebuked a dream, that's fine because that's what God gave us the power to do. And I'm just thankful for that. And um, so as time went on, he had he had, had to put a, a permanent catheter in his chest for the dialysis because his kidneys weren't functioning and the doctor, they give you three months for the kidneys to come back because they're generally the things that take the first hit with something big like a heart attack and that kind of thing. So um, they were finally able to do the heart catheter that would let us know what kind of damage was done and what we were, we were facing. And when they did that, it, it was just a really long, drawn-out process. And while they were, they were doing it, my mother-in-law had stayed with me, and um, she was talking to one of the people in the waiting room, and his wife had been back in the surgery for hours and hours. And I was just kind of ignoring them because I was just wanting it to be over and to get back and just, just be done. And the doctor came out and told us that they had found three blockages. One was 100% and two were 90. And um, we know that COVID was not brought on by God. It wasn't God's way of saying, hey, I'm going to put you in the hospital so you'll sit still so I can finally talk to you. Because that's not what God does. That's not what we do with our own kids. We don't break their legs so that they sit still. But we might tape them together, but we don't break them. And anyway, so I was relieved that it was over and know that, okay, so this is something that can be fixed. You know, we just move on. I knew God would take care of it. And as we were walking out, we passed this gentleman that was still sitting there. And um, I'm not one to have ever done this, but I just asked him, I said, can we just pray for you? And so we just did real, real quickly. And as we were walking out, my mother-in-law is like, I didn't know that you did that. And I'm like, it's because I never have. And it was just really just crazy, you know, just was one of those things that didn't even have a thought that happened to it. It was just, boom, we're just doing this. And um, then when they came and told him the news about what needed to be done, he was at the point that he couldn't sit up in bed by himself. He couldn't pull himself up. You know, he barely could lift his hand to put the suction in his mouth to... Um, get the gook that was still there from the ventilator being there. And um, then they said, oh, you're going to have an open heart surgery. And he was just... Uh, yeah, I'm like, no, I'm not. Uh-uh, I'm done. I want out of here. I want to go home. And this is like, well, you can't go home. I don't care. I want to go home. You're, you're not well enough. And this is about the time I start finding out everything that I just went through. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Why don't I remember it? Well, because I don't need to remember it. Um, what I, you know, the thing I, I take away, you know, and through this whole thing, like I said before, you see God's hand because Peelers came to visit me at, the, at Toledo Hospital. 
And I remember telling Ben that I was afraid I was going to lose my house, my motorcycle, you know, the cars. We were going to be homeless. I didn't know I was receiving a paycheck or not. And uh, so that was something else that, you know, people were praying for and about. And then I got some visitors came in from the, from the base. And uh, they said, oh, by the way, your, your time card's being taken care of. Um, you were put in for leave donations, um, which ended up being over 300 hours of leave donated to me so I could continue to re receive my paycheck and, you know, and, and take care you know, of the bills and everything getting met. We had people stop by the house, random people we don't even know, and give a donation. It was just, you know, every time we turned around, there was another blessing coming from God. And then they finally said, okay, we can, you're, you're well enough now, you can go to a step-down hospital for rehab. I'm like, good. But I still couldn't have normal fluids. They had me on thickened fluids. Now, I don't know if anybody in here has had to deal with that, but... They tell you that you can't taste it. It doesn't change the taste of what you're drinking, and I'm here to tell you, yeah, it does. I, I wasn't drinking a whole lot, so therefore I wasn't helping my kidneys any. Um, but then after being at the, at the rehab for about a week or so, um, the speech therapist that had been working with me, she says, all right, let, let's just try and see what happens. And we'll give you, you know, don't, no straw, but go ahead and we'll, we'll give you some fluids and so I, I drank some ice water in front of her, didn't have any problems. So she lifted the ban on normal fluids. And I was never, I don't think I was ever happier in my life. And I started going through ice water like crazy. And uh, I, was, I was having dialysis three days a week, which continued at, at the step-down hospital. And then there's one day, somewhere around the 12th, they, I had it, and then I was supposed to have it again on Friday. Well, Friday morning they come in and it says, yeah, we're not doing dialysis today. I'm like, okay, I guess that's good. And uh, this we'll wait and see what your, your numbers look like on Monday. Monday comes around, they say, yeah, we're not, we're not doing dialysis. Great. Wednesday came and it says, yeah, we're, we're not doing it anymore. They says, you're, you're, you don't have to have it anymore. Uh, and, you know, and here I went from the the ports, which were going to be a per, supposed to be permanent, because they thought, yeah, your kidneys are never going to recover, to we're no longer doing dialysis. You know, and the only answer to that is God's grace. And it was just, you know, amazing that you know when they said, yeah, you're done. I'm like, yes, another another miracle, and. Mind you, you know, and you go through, you know, you go through thoughts of, of you know, sometimes when you take your eyes off of Christ, you start asking, you know, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why, of all the people who had COVID that I know, why did I get it so bad? And I messaged Tom one time about it. He says, well, you know why. Because the devil is here to cheat and destroy and take you out. I, you know, and I, I thanked him. I said, thanks, Tom. I, I needed that because there, there are times, you know, you get so involved in what's going on in your life. Uh, you know, because, I mean, 
the Bible says, you know, God's only going to give you what you can handle. And I was remembering that verse, and I'm like, well, I must be able to handle a lot more than I thought I could. You know, and say for Paula, I don't know how she did it. I really don't. But when I look at some of the pictures that were taken of me in the ICU with her leaning over me, her hand on my head, you know, just talking. When I look at that picture, all I see is nothing but love. And, and you know, with, with everybody praying and, and you know, strangers that I didn't know were praying, you know, it's just, you know, God, God's hand was in everything. We had, you know, we were we had some construction work done in the spring, you know, and you know, talk. It was it was Joel's company, wherever he's he's around here somewhere, I think. But uh, they were, you know, they were backed up because of the COVID the previous year, and and he says, well, he said maybe we can get you in quick. He said your job's not that difficult, except for the chimney that that, that didn't want to come down, but. Uh, so that you know, they got the roof taken care of and some additional work, and you know, it's God's timing. If they wouldn't have been able to do that, and we would have had to wait until late in the summer, and then this happened, you know, it's like no, but God's timing and God's favor. Yep. Um, I'm going to try to speed it up because people are looking hungry here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but during the time he was in this step-down hospital, he, like I said, he was only able to kind of like, pull himself up in the bed and kind of lift his legs and move. He wasn't able to sit up unassisted. Or he could sit up once he got to the position, but he couldn't get to it unassisted. And they took him from that to being able to stand for a couple of seconds and to take a couple of steps and eventually got to where he could walk halfway around the building, which was about 260 feet. And just it was just within not even a full month's time, he went from not being able to sit up, essentially kind of like being like a six-month-old baby, to walking. I mean, he was still had the walker and all of that, and he still you know, needed to build up strength, but it was just amazing to see what God did. And he had 20-some co-workers come and visit, and we had just had countless people come in, and it was just absolutely amazing. And the day before he came home, um, Jody and Paula Markley came over after church, and help me clean the house because I hadn't been home in 60 days. And um, not exactly like Betty Crocker or Martha Stewart anyhow, but that didn't help. So they, they had come and helped me get that all ready. And we got groceries and all that kind of stuff and got him home. And um, the visiting nurse and the therapist came. And we went for the first doctor visits. It was like December 6th. He'd been home about a week. And the cardiologist was like, you're doing great. I'm super happy to see you. You know, things are, are looking good. And the, um, did I say surgeon or cardiologist? Oh, and the surgeon said the same thing. And they were really pleased with how things were going. And we had talked to Kim Parsley and uh, had asked her if she would be willing to come and give Terry a haircut because 
He usually has, this is kind of long for him even now, but has always had the military haircuts. And so when he hadn't had a haircut in two and a half months, he was looking a little like Grizzly Adams and uh, wasn't feeling much like himself. And so she came and um, she gave him a haircut and it just really lifted his spirits. And, you know, he just really did well. And then we were able to come here for the coffee house and kind of get back to being with the family that we missed and um, kind of back to normal life. And we tried to uh, go to the lights at the zoo, which it was real interesting. If you've never pushed a wheelchair with someone heavier than you in it downhill at the zoo, that's a good time. <laughs> but um, She definitely got her exercise in that night. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, it gives you a different appreciation for the struggles that other people have to go through on a daily basis. And I never really gave a thought about how smooth the curve cuts were for people with wheelchairs until then. And, you know, it's just one of those perspective things. And anyhow, um, Christmas Eve, um, our son Zach had stopped by and it was about 11 o'clock at night. And we were just kind of talking in the back room. He had gone to sleep a few hours before, and um, Zach went to leave. And he opened the back door, and here, stuffed in the corner, was a little red bag. And I was like, well, that's weird, you know? And he's like, how long has that been there? I'm like, I don't know. I would have picked it up if I had yeah, seen no it. No clue, because we were going in and out the garage and utility room doors. And we, yeah, were, we, hadn't, we weren't using the back door. Yeah, we hadn't been there for some time. And it was in the corner, so when he had walked through the doorway, he didn't even, didn't even bump it. And we picked it up, and it was a book, and it was called The Christmas Jar, which I've never heard of, but I read a little bit of it, and essentially was you put money in it throughout the year, and unless you need it for something, you go and you gift it to someone for Christmas, and you just leave it anonymously. And so there was a jar full of money, and... Um, being the 20-something that he is, he was super excited because he's like, Mom, there's a lot of quarters in here. <laughs> and he has a laundromat, so he was real excited about that. And, um, but it was just amazing. It was just one of those things that literally every time we turned around, it was something. Just It, it didn't have to be a big thing, but it was just another reminder of God's like, I've never left you. I'm not going to leave you. And, you know, we're, we're still moving. Still moving. And, and, and met with the surgeon, got the surgery scheduled for the open heart. Um, wasn't scared about it. But my thoughts were, you know, God got me this far. He's not going to leave me now. And had the surgery. was in recovery. Everything was going well. Um, got discharged after a week. And then uh, we had a follow-up with the surgeon later on, and he, he explained what he did. Um, and he also said, I see no damage from the heart attack and stroke to your heart. He says, your heart is strong. Uh, yeah, exactly, praise God, because that's the only, only way that there's no damage is God had his hands on it. And he said also that if we hadn't found out about these blockages, which COVID was the enemy's tool to take him down, but 
um, the doctors being to able to repair the blockages and do bypass was God's way of turning that to the good for him because the doctor said that if those hadn't been repaired, that chances were really high that maybe five years from now he would have just dropped dead. Yep. And um, he's just continued to do well and... Um, Rehab's going well. Um, you know, people would, you know, the doctor asked me, so, well, didn't you have, did you have chest pains or anything? I said, no. He said, palpitations? I said, no, I, did, I didn't notice anything. Because the only thing I noticed was when I went to run around the track at work was I'd get partway up the one lane and I start breathing real hard. I'm like, I just figured I was, you know, out of shape. But that wasn't the case. You know, when you have three blockages and one's almost, you know, one's 100% and two more are real close to it, you know, that, that's going to, you know, could cause issues. But, you know, like I said, you know, we, we've said it all along, God's favor. You know, nothing happened to me. I didn't get in an accident at any point in time. And it's weird to say it, but thanks to COVID, they found the issue with the heart and was able to correct it. And we're going to wrap it up now. Yep. And just he's continuing to recover and God's continuing to provide and and just even to just show us just the family and the friends and, and that that we have and to know that we are thankful for for Casey, that she was able to support Chris and all of this, and just to know that he has a godly wife to lean on when um, that, you know, he needs it, and hopefully he is that to her as well. Um, but one thing that I do want to say is we have to get our spiritual house in order. We have to be ready, and we have to know that when Jesus comes, that we have to be ready for that moment. But we also have to have our earthly house in order. So if you haven't done so and you have children, please think about it and get a will, get someone in order to take care of your children because we never plan for these kinds of things to happen. That's not our plan. So just take that with a grain of salt. But um, that was just one thing that meant to me, but... Um... Yeah, I, I believe the other big takeaway that, at least for us, was don't put a cap on the blessings God's going to send your way. You, you can't put a cap on it. It got to the point where, you know, people would, you know, we'd get something in the mail, we'd get a check in the mail, or we'd get, you know, something left on our door, and we were like, okay, thanks. Thank you, Lord. You know, I'm not surprised anymore. Because we know, we, you know, he's, he was taking care of us. So. Yep. And that's the big thing for me, too, was before it was always like, why would God care about that? So I wouldn't necessarily pray about it. And now it's, why wouldn't he care yeah, about that? Yeah. Because it cares about every hair on our head. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your prayers, and thank you for not being scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because you know, when I, when I put the message out on Facebook, you know, it's, part of it was, if you don't think God is doing miracles, then you need to talk to me and Paula, because He is still doing miracles to this day. And we we can't say thank you enough to our family 
you know, our own family plus, you know, you guys, your, your family to us, you know, my military family, every, everything that, all, all the prayers, the spiritual support, the, the visitors, we just can't say thank you enough. So, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you all for listening and participating this morning. The last verse I want to leave you with, <clears throat> there's a story in the end of the book of Joshua. And as you're, you guys are all familiar, we've talked through a lot of the uh, adventures of Joshua. But you see Joshua getting to a point uh, where he's passing things on. And the verse that I want to, if you can bring that verse up, Jane. Joshua chapter 24, verse 31 says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. It's so important that we not only acknowledge the faithfulness of God, but that we retell the stories of the faithfulness of God. That we acknowledge his goodness, his greatness, the little things and the big things, little provisions. And there are things in this life that we don't see. There are things that don't make sense. There's difficulty. There's battles that appear lost, but there's also tremendous victory, and it's important that we not only acknowledge them in the moment, take the time to revisit them in the future, and also, and important, most importantly, pass them on as the faithfulness of God. So that's a kind of a over, a real quick uh, kind of overarch of uh, Terry and Paul's story. I know it was a there was a lot more than what we heard this morning, a lot of details that didn't make the cut for this morning. But I encourage you, look back on your own lives, find the faithfulness of God, and retell it as we go from this place. Bow with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Revelation Rock, for the opportunity we have to take, uh, to take a Sunday and set it aside to honor a story of your faithfulness, to hear and listen to the details Thank you so much for Terry and Paula, for their lives, for their role uh, in this family, in this family room. Pray a blessing over each family as we go from this place. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful winter day we're having this spring. In Jesus' name, amen.